What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tom Goodwin, who's head of futures at Publicis Group in the world, based in France. Publicis, that is. Tom's based in New York. How are you, Tom? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on again. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this chat. I actually find that when I'm not doing this kind of interaction, I quite easily can lose myself. And uh, I've sort of closed down some activity on the social medias. And this is kind of, it feels good to be talking to someone, you know, and it feels, it feels good to know the kind of conversation we're going to have. And uh, yeah. just wanted to say that. No, I, I totally agree. And, and that's precisely why I'm on this. Like, um, I never write to people and say, please, can we discuss something? But there's, there's something odd about being in a situation where you're just absorbing information and you're just synthesizing information. And somehow, unless you talk to other people and you test theories and you share points of view, like somehow it seems harder to make sense of it. It seems harder to feel okay about it. So in sort of classic therapy sense, like um, I think the main reason I'm here is to sort of uh, get out of my system and discuss things and feel somewhat cathartic. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about getting ideas out of the system or out of your yeah. system. You don't, you're, you're very prolific as far as thinking and public thinking go. What's your, like, what's your relationship, especially with Twitter and LinkedIn? You know, what's your mind state when you're expressing there? Because I think it's very easy for people who don't know you, who haven't spent time with you or with anyone who's like prolific on the internet yeah. to project a certain personality type onto the person where that might or might not be true at all. Like what's I, I've never really thought that much about Twitter. Um, I've personally hated this concept that people have personal brands and I've absolutely loathed this idea that your audience would shape what you write or that you would write different things based on engagement rates or statistics of some sort. So I've, I've kind of hated all that and I've deliberately been really ignorant. So I don't even know how many followers I've got. I I don't, certainly don't track um, how many people see things. Uh, but I've been very aware for the first time in the last few weeks that me going about my normal uh, life, me suggesting opinions the way that I do has been quite upsetting to quite a lot of people. Um, so for the first time ever, I've actually been really careful about how I present myself and careful about my tone, not in any way to the extent of, uh, to the, to, so that I can protect my quote unquote brand, but just because I don't want to be hurtful of people. Mm. Um, and this is a very strange time where I think everyone's very emotionally charged and everyone's going through different stages of grief. And I, for the first time ever, my, me being optimistic has been somewhat difficult for people to, to digest and me trying to create context or me trying to put things in perspective has just been seen as being very, very um, sort of unhelpful and almost sociopathic, I guess. Mm. So why, why do you do it if it's not about a personal brand, if it's not about status seeking, which is not exactly what you said, but yeah. and, and if you haven't been in I'm paraphrasing you badly and then I'm going to insert my own word into it. If you haven't been empathetic to the entire universe with every single thing you put on the internet, why do you do it at all? Uh, I think I mean, this is a very, very good question. And I think it's something that everyone should be asking themselves at times like this. Um, the first part is a lot of my writing comes from what is more like diarrhea than anything else. And I don't mean that to be sort of shocking or or kind of ungracious towards myself. But sometimes you hear about people who want to write a book and I just think, well, why haven't you? Just do it. Because for me, like I have no real ability to keep this stuff in me. Like um, I just have thoughts that I would love to have out there. Not because I think they're right or because I think they're helpful, but just I feel like they are a worthy part of a conversation. Mm. Um, so a lot of my writing, whether it's books, whether it's um, tweets, is actually just to start conversations and to put out things that might be somewhat um, interesting and helpful either to me or for other people or for both. Uh, and the second part is I realize that I am addicted, actually, if I'm honest. Like, uh, if, if I'm perfectly honest, um, there is absolutely something about the, uh, the notification system, which is not very good for my brain. Mm. There's a couple of themes that I've come across in recent years that are good ways to understand the need to express. One is the concept of kenosis. And I, th I think it's more of a religious concept and the, it's like this self-emptying. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard someone bring it up 
talking about uh, religion, but also talking about artists like Prince. So when you see him perform or saw him perform, he's just trying to leave everything there. There's this yeah. thing that I relate to. And then I don't know, are these Freudian ideas, the idea of anally retentive and anally expulsive? <laughs> like if, if I think the theory, oh, please, someone would have studied this and I'm just going to get this so wrong. But like, apparently if you had parents who were like really were worried about like your poo <laughs> and freaked you out about it, you would hold it all in and be repressed. And, and maybe the opposite is true, that you're just expulsive. And it's, I, again, it's not that either of these things are right or wrong. It's just that I think they're interesting uh, lenses through which to try to understand your own uh, behavior. My parents loved my diarrhea. So they used to just, um, you know, play with it and sort of throw it around the apartment, make, make sort of art with it. So I guess that's where it comes from. <laughs> that's obviously not You should put that, on, put that on the internet. I think uh, these are very interesting things to explore. And I think um, one thing else I realized that we haven't really had time for our brains to adjust to the world of social media. And just in the same way that you get 14-year-old kids that, um, you know, send out spreadsheets of girls they've kissed and then they, um, you know, go viral and they have to sort of change their name or people that do something terrible at the age of 17 and then their lives are ruined forever because of a bad tweet when they're drunk once or something. I think we have this incredible power at our fingertips and we haven't really been that thoughtful about how we need to be careful about it. In particular, I find that the Twitter is, is almost such a pure and fast and sort of condensed form of communication um, that's so sort of ideas rich on a good day and so full of really sort of sharp arguments that sometimes it's quite hard to do that in the real life. So mm. I've, I find the more that I've tweeted, the less fun I am in real life because real life seems quite slow and people take a long time to make a point and you have to sort of say hello to people first and stuff. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, yeah. I feel aware that it's starting to change the way that we all behave in a way. Yeah, I find it interesting because you, you are pretty prolific slash diarrhea-like uh, on the internet, your yeah. word. Uh, and it, but it's interesting because all that's happening right now in an extreme way is, you know, no sentence is ever a sentence, no word is just a word. And it's, uh, I'll give you another theory that I will misreport, but the actor network theory, right? So if I yeah. was to say that square, square tables were more equal than rectangular tables, that sentence houses hundreds and hundreds of pieces of meaning and what happens now on the internet is people have their own little turf <laughs> where they're like i'm about round tables actually yeah and uh, i'm, I'm anti-table <laughs> and i'm i don't think we should sit at tables we should stand and everyone just applies their own turf to the thing that actually could be quite a long way away from the original point and so yeah. I, I feel like with with writers and with speakers that i might agree with or disagree with from a like a political point of view, and I don't know why that has to come up, but it tends to come up. Yeah. Like, I, just want to, I just want to hear what they, I want to try to work out what they're trying to say and then see if it's useful to me as opposed to, oh, you, you know, you like square tables, you're anti-round table, I can't believe. <laughs> and, and the funny thing for me is like, you're in the middle of all, you know, you're able to, you, you get attacked for all of that stuff. Yeah, and I think um, for, for the first time ever, I've actually been really annoyed with how people have judged my intentions. I think Rory Sutherland's quite an interesting guy, and often he has opinions which are considered quite outrageous by the sort of um, cliched sort of coastal elite, sort of you know liberal, socially progressive people, because he dares to say things like a high-speed train link might not be a good idea, or that maybe there are some okay things about Brexit. And I think he's able to do that because he's extremely smart and old, and he uses humour to disarm that situation. But I'm really aware, actually, for the first time that I don't know we, we may be part of a cohort of people that are actually, you know, kind of as biased as we look at the right wing. You know, we're kind of smug and we sort of presume that we know best and we say things like, you know, there's no lives being worth lost in a situation like this and talking about the economy is distasteful. Uh, and somehow uh, it, uh, it's been amazing to me how easy it is to offend people. And I kind of, uh, I feel like somehow we've got extremely soft uh, and extremely woke. And the internet right now seems to be a kind of competition to see how self-righteous you can be. So how quickly can you tell people off for sunbathing or how outraged can you get because someone's asking a question that might be quite uh, tricky or, you know, if you dare sort of say things like maybe um, wearing a mask is a sign of fear and people are very quickly um, sort of outraged by, by such sort of comments. And um, it makes me sort of slightly disappointed that we can't have more difficult conversations and we can't be both intelligent and unemotional without seeming to be completely misanthropic at the same time. 
What do you feel are some of the more difficult conversations that you've been trying to kick off about uh, COVID-19? Uh, the notion that so the, probably the hardest one I think to express is I, I am very aware that um, social media feels quite um, and sorry for the slight historical um, sort of anti-women nature of this word, but it feels quite hysterical. Like it seems to be a competition to see who can be more outraged than the other. It seems to be uh, a kind of system where people are trying to present even more um, awful situations. So whether it's the kind of slight joy that people seem to get from sharing pictures of empty shelves um, or whether it's the sort of uh, league table of deaths, um, somehow everyone seems to want to sort of outdo each other with more and more awful situations. There were people taking uh, graphs of the unemployment rates uh, and sort of mashing them up with music to sort of dramatise how quick the peak had been recently. And things like that seem extremely unhelpful towards a sort of progressive and proportionate conversation about these things. So I'm, a, I'm aware of the, the sort of um, incredible nature of the internet in informing extreme opinions. And it seems you're either, you know, a virus hoaxer, the things that this doesn't exist, and you're saying that human lives are worth nothing, and you're saying that the stock market should be propped up at all costs, and it's all about money, or you're seen to be someone that thinks that, you know, the death of any single person is an absolute tragedy, and to ask old people what they think about ruining their kids futures even, even to sort of keep them longer for a few more alive longer for a few more months is an awful question and i think somehow we need to enjoy the nuance of of the debate in the middle and we need to sort of listen to both sides and we need to appreciate the complexity to discussions and it makes me think that our media for about the last 20 years has only ever been able to present a simplistic view of things, whether it's the Arab-Israeli situation, whether it's the uh, notion of the Wall Street collapsing. Like, we, we seem to sort of not be able to deal with things that are complex for some reason. Yeah, I feel news doesn't operate in general on much more of a deeper level than these three things, which is what do we need to worry about today? Who are we going to blame and who are we going to feel smug about? That's basically <laughs> most of news that, that I come across. I've, I've just finished yeah. a, news, a news project. I've interviewed a lot of people about it. And uh, one question I asked is, what is news? And yeah. out of 25 people I interviewed, everyone laughed. And then yeah. all of them could define it really clearly. But obviously the laugh meant that there was a gap between what they thought it was, what they thought it could be, and what it actually is. Yeah. And yet, these people were still spending a lot of time with it. What, do you, what you put that question in different countries or not? Because I yeah, feel yeah. Like in America in particular, news is almost a sort of entertainment show that is loosely based around current affairs. Uh, whereas I feel like in some European markets, there is a sense of sort of telling the world what's actually happened that might matter. So. Yeah, I mean, we might be able to publish some of the research at some point, yeah. but I'd, I'd need to get clearance. But yeah, and, and there's also a difference between uh, Eastern Europe or countries that have had authoritarian rulers. Their relationship with news is different because news that people grew up with was utterly propaganda. And yeah. so when they get a sniff of something like a, a CNN or uh, different companies, that they play such an important intellectual lifeline for them. Yeah. That, that it's something that are, in the West we might even take for granted. And then you sort of, yeah, so it's, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Wait, what, do you, what do you put down the, uh, I'm calling it Awful Outdoing, which could be a good name for a third book. <laughs> uh, what, what do you put this Awful Outdoing down to psychologically? I have no idea. Um, and that's why it's good to discuss it. I think um, my greatest fear is that it's that people um, may either unconsciously or consciously think that they may get more engagement that way because bad tweets do seem to perform better than worse tweets. Um, you know, lots of people for a long time, ironically now, have called me a sort of very pessimistic sort of angry person. And it's only because if I do a tweet saying, look at this amazing work, it doesn't seem to spread that far. And if I do something saying, look at what fucking idiots made this, it seems to sort of go somewhat viral. Um, so I think maybe unconsciously or subconsciously uh, or consciously people are, um, are sort of knowing that it's going to do well. I think there's probably this sense of grief that people have where they feel like they need to sort of get these things out of their system. Um, I think maybe the algorithms are somewhat responsible. Maybe, um, you know, the, the, the smart brains behind these algorithms realize that things that cause fear do better and they sort of promote behavior like that. 
Um, and, and there's almost, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting thing because um, I'm not entirely sure what the word for patriot would be if it's not about a country, but it's about the species. Um, so whatever the sort of pro-human uh, cohorts would be, I, I feel like people think it's pro-human right now to share terrible news because it's going to force people to stay inside, which is going to help flatten the curve. And I think somehow people feel like they're, they're, they're fighting a good fight by terrifying everyone. And they're fighting a good fight by sharing anecdotes of people who they know who once met someone who died or sharing anecdotes of young people that have died. And I think maybe people think that they're, they're being quite helpful in the fight by doing that. And anyone that dares say that, you know, a study has shown this might actually be weather dependent and that means that this might be over with sooner than we think, like somehow that's thought to be sort of anti the cause and that's going to make everyone go outside and start kissing each other and licking benches and stuff. And I find that quite odd because actually hope is very useful to us now. Like if you're a small company and you feel like your finances are screwed, to know there's a group of people who are ready to be unleashed from their apartments with money that they've saved up and they are going to love, you know, um, Italian home-cooked food from a small company more than ever before. That, that hope is what's going to keep people... Um, you know, negotiating on their rent freezes and it's going to allow them to believe that their business can succeed in the future if they can just carry on. So I think mm. now is a really good time for hope, but somehow that scene has been quite um, against the grain. Uh, I've got uh, such a nerd. I've got all these theories and themes that are popping into my head. And <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, I love it. I, yeah. I don't walk around my apartment talking like this. I don't talk... <laughs> <laughs> Except when I'm doing these interviews, and that's why I love doing them. Yeah. But yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. Obviously, I think absurdism mixed with extreme emotions is yeah. part of what's happening. And that's what's happening in politics right now, especially with the populist leaders. Yeah. The other thing I think, there's, there's three other themes I'm going to dump in right now. One no, is, I, um, I love this, honestly. Jonathan hates research into awe. And how, again, you think about populist leaders who are often often large men, uh, often who've been on television or run their own media companies before, yeah. there's a certain sense of awe. And that, that research is available. You can find that if you just Google Jonathan Hayden research on awe. And he even mentions in this research how walking into an office with a big table can trigger awe in us. Absolutely, yeah. Then we've got the concept of grievance and Eckhart Tolle's concept of pain body and how societies and groups of people, and you notice this especially in England with like the soccer, the football teams there, right? Everyone's got a grievance or the English have got a grievance against Germany and France and you get educated in how to feel pain and anger about these things, even if they happened a hundred years ago. And so I feel like all these things are coming together in this uh, third book of yours that I'm now calling Awful Outdoing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm briefing, I'm briefing uh, you on your next project, but it's... Uh, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot I going mean, on there. It's absolutely something that I want to write about because um, I get extremely upset, actually, with the degree to which we now consider every year to be worse than the year before. Like I am, you know, let, let's get something clear right now. Like I'm very aware that I'm a very privileged person. Like if you, if you had to tick the kind of boxes on a matrix of privilege, I think I probably have every single one that you can imagine. And therefore I never want it to sound um, disrespectful for people that are aware of, or who experience more unfairness and have a much worse life in demonstrable ways. But the reality is if you take a step back and I don't want to go all sort of hands rosling on you, but you know, people used to die giving birth to kids on a regular basis. Um, you know, there was a whole generation of people who woke up during the Cuban Missile Crisis and thought that the world was going to end. Um, there have been times when poor people would work in workhouses and be given gruel. There have been times when people just get stabbed routinely. There have been times when millions of people died on a regular basis. You know, the life expectancy of people has shot up. And... Somehow we have entered an environment where from one year to the next, pretty much all measurements on an objective basis improve. The problems that we all have become more first world-like in their nature. Uh, and if you look at these things, relatively speaking, then things get worse. So, the, you know, obviously the gap between the wealthy and the less wealthy uh, increases. But generally speaking, in pretty much every country on, on the planet, from one year to the next, people who are poorer are still more wealthy every single year. And often many of the things that people like buying that give them happiness are cheaper every single year as well. Unfortunately, the things that are most important, like healthcare and housing, tends to go up. But there is a sort of long-term narrative of pretty much everything getting better and in every way, whether it's health, whether it's democracy, whether it's the freedom of the press, um, whether it's the fairness of the law system, 
um, whether it's the ability for technology to produce greener energy at cheaper prices, whether it's the ability of farmland to create more food. Everything is generally getting better. But the internet is always this miserable place of I can't believe how many celebrities died this year and I can't believe how unfair this thing is or I can't believe this thing is happening. And somehow we whipped ourselves into a frenzy where we feel, you know, we joke about having to turn the planet on and off again and restart it because everything's so bad. Or I was on Instagram this morning and someone had a a viral um, image about uh, the 21st century Fox logo was changed into the 21st century sucks. Um, and it makes me really angry because we're kind of, um, we're, we're forcing ourselves into misery that doesn't need to exist. Mm. Why do you think that is? Because I think we probably all want to be part of a cohort of people. I think um, it's essential for us to feel somewhat aligned with other people. And the prevailing wind at the moment is to ensure that um, we fit in by being as miserable and we become notable in our groups by being the most miserable. And I think somehow at this precise moment in time, and I don't mean, um, you know, March or whatever the month is, April uh, 2020, I think for the last five years, somehow it's become very okay to complain about everything. You know, you can complain about Instagram influencers at the same time as also behaving slightly that way. Um, you can behave, you complain about the boringness of the global aesthetic and how everything's turning millennial pink, but then you probably still have mid-century furniture at home. I, I think somehow... Um, we're using, we're using social media to sort of express the parts of us that are perhaps quite uncomfortable to express in real life. And then that's forming a sort of container of grief and anxiety and um, showing off and extreme behavior that, that somehow then um, reflects back on us and, and sort of makes us believe and feel that way, I think. These are all ideas that I'm just expressing for the first time now, so they might be completely wrong and I'd love to get your opinion. So. Yeah, yeah, you're going to like this question. Uh, isn't Tom Goodwin a complaint factory? <laughs> no, I think the algorithms probably... Uh, I think there are two parts to this. Uh, no, maybe three. So one is um, I am unbelievably impressed and excited and inspired by technology. Like I, I see the way that our devices can make everything incredible. Like If you grew up in Africa right now, you know, you don't need to build a village library and borrow some books from um, a sort of supply mission. You now get to access all literature, all movies, all music, all podcasts ever created since the birth of mankind. That's a pretty amazing environment to, to live in. Um, and then relative to what's possible, what we commonly experience, um, I think is quite sort of uh, b below what, what's possible. And therefore I get quite frustrated when everything from having to type in your credit card details three times when you book a hotel to having passwords that don't auto save when you paid to um, circumvent a paywall, like, like little things like that bother me. So, so often my positivity becomes a, a conduit for negativity. But the more important things are just, I think, I think the, the, the way that social media works is, is people tend to jump on things that make them feel something that's negative. So whether it's that they share in the enthusiasm for scornfulness, whether it's that people are fearful of it, whether it's that you make people angry, whether it's outrage, I think somehow material like that tends to do better. And therefore, it's that that gets propagated. Um, but the third thing is it, it never makes me behave that way. And I, I never think to myself, wow, you know, miserable things that mock people do well. I have to double down on that. It's mm, so more of a bother factory. And the other thing is, and I know you get this on the internet, I've seen people come at you with this sort of stuff, would be something like this. Tom, you're almost a middle-aged white guy. You have a full-time job. You have a massive role. You've been gainfully employed for a very long time, obviously well-educated. Uh, people turn up to hear you talk on stages. You have an apartment in Soho in Manhattan. You've got family in England. What do you know about anything other than that? Uh, not that much. I mean, um, I work hard to try and uh, experience as many different viewpoints as I can. I put effort into whether it's going to sort of shopping malls in shitty cities in the north of England or whether it's going on road trips to um, Appalachian um, sort of coal field um, states that have now gone into disrepair and have an opioid crisis. Like I, I, I put time and energy into going to these places and plonking myself into bars and listening to people. But it's important to realize the, 
you will never understand this stuff in a truly empathetic way. You might experience bits of it, but it will still be framed through your mindset. It will still be framed through the bias and prejudices that you have that you don't realize. So I, I make a habit of trying to be aware of what I don't know. And I think there is a strange thing with the internet that people presume if you put out a point of view to start a discussion, that either you didn't really want people to write back and you just wanted people to say, you know, that's correct, well done, Tom. And actually, it's the opposite. I want people to challenge me and tell me where I'm wrong. Or people think that you're kind of trolling and that you're just saying something outrageous so that people can kind of, um, you know, so you can get engagement rates up or something. But, but no, I, I am massively aware of, of what I don't know. And it's a lot. And then what, what are some of the other, I mean, you talked about generally feeling optimistic about the world. I mean, what could someone who's just who feels like they never had anything to begin with and who now feels they've lost that, whatever that was, what do they have to feel optimistic about right now? I think one of the elements of my life that I am most aware of that is different to many people that I meet is that my parents had this incredible sense of belief in the world and belief in me. And I didn't come from the fact that I was particularly good at school because I wasn't. But we used to have a sign on our fridge... Um, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, it's that we're more powerful than our wildest dreams. It's our darkness um, that should worry, you know, that worries us when it should be our lightness. You know, who are you not to be brilliant? Words to that effect. Uh, Marianne, oh God. And yeah, there, there was always just this sense of, one, it doesn't really matter what you do because we're going to love you anyway. So my parents have no interest whatsoever in how financially successful that I am or how many friends I have. They just care that I'm happy. Um, and I'll, I'll never know what it's like to be brought up in an environment where there's a concept of failure or where there's a concept of, of, of not having belief in you. And I think that probably is the greatest gift that parents can, can give their kids, actually. I think, you know, people assume that the greatest gift you can have is a great education or is to have rich friends or something. But no, I think, I think having an innate sense of belief and the impossibility of failure is probably by far a greater gift. Um, so I can't relate to people at all who, who, who are full of self-doubt. Um, so what I would try to say to those people is to try to somehow find it within yourself to see the constructs you have and the skills that you have and the attitudes and the knowledge that you have and try and believe in yourself and try and believe that in the history of the world, there probably has never been a more fair environment for success to happen. It's still not particularly fair. It's not remotely fair, actually, but it's more fair than it's ever been before. Um, and the barriers to entry and the cost of entry are lower than ever before. Um, you know, in the 1970s, you had to have a garage and so parents that bought you a computer to succeed. Um, and now you can actually succeed being a sort of 16-year-old that decides to do a drop shipping business in your, in your sort of bedroom or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be fair to you, my question wasn't a very good question. But he hearing, hearing that response, <laughs> there will be people who will be like, yeah, but Tom, you, you can say that. Like, yeah. I, don't, I, I don't feel that way because of how I look or how I sound. Yes. In, in England, the shitty cities you mentioned, for example, if you come from one of those and you're yeah. fortunate enough to get some education and might go on to something else, which is not to say better or worse, but you've got an accent... That's yeah. gonna that's gonna hurt you if you want to move to a major city. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't a fair question, honestly, that that I gave you. But at the same time, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I accept you are completely right, and um, probably the most one of the most dangerous and least talked about dynamics in the world today is survivorship bias. And when you see the people that speak on a stage at, at TechCrunch. It is effectively like getting people who've won the national lottery um, to talk through the wisdom of their choices and for them to say, oh, you know, I could just feel the eight coming. You know, I just walked out that day and there was just eights everywhere and that's why I chose the eights. And, and people celebrate with smugness their success because they presume that somehow it was everything that they did rather than luck. And then people post-rationalize it into a strategy. You know, so you see all sorts of people saying things like, oh, you know, double down on what you love because I always followed my passions and all statistics show that's a completely lousy way to be 
successful, whatever successful is or is defined by. Um, and people say all sorts of crazy things like, oh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, I invested based on, uh, you know, a, a sort of vision that came to me. And I think one of the saddest things about modern life is the acceptance that there is a meritocracy because it means that people who've been highly successful um, are able to ascribe their success to working hard or being a good person or being uh, smarter or taking more risks. Um, and those things are all largely untrue. It's mainly down to luck in many different forms. Um, but it also presupposes that those people who don't do very well in a meritocracy um, are probably lazy or they're probably fat or they're stupid or they're, um, they're not equipped with the right skills. And actually, that's nonsense. Like most of the people who fail are actually people who are really smart but um, you know, didn't have the right connections or they're really smart and they overthought their situation and they kind of gave up on an idea because they were too quick to see faults in it when more stupid people would have kind of more ignorantly carried on ahead. Yeah, yeah. I think you use the word close or near. Proximity is one of the main things that keeps people literally, but not just literally, but literally away from the ability to advance. Uh, yeah. and, and that's why it's interesting to see debates around how cities and suburbs are structured physically and yeah. ge geographically, right? Because if you're, if you're kept in a, in a place with other people who don't have much opportunity, that's more likely to fulfill that that's going to probably be your destiny, not for everyone, but, you know, versus being in a suburb where there is opportunity. So that's Absolutely. an interesting topic as well. Uh, what else about coronavirus that you've been thinking about lately that is, is something that we should get into? I think everyone's unbelievably quick these days. Um, there is this very strange thing that's happened where somehow um, we assume that the pace of change in the world is really quick and we presume that now is a really good time to have hot takes. Um, so every agency and every planner right now is being tasked with drawing trends through this and deciding what the future will look like based on what we see today. And I think that's a very strange thing. I think... Um, you know, the, the reality is that not that many things change on the planet. You know, urbanization has been a trend um, since about 6,000 BC. Um, people shaking each other's hands has been a trend, I think, since about 2000 BC. Uh, cheersing your drinks together, I think, comes from the kind of Roman times to show you're not poisoning each other. So I think this, this idea that what could be the um, fifth or fourth biggest flu event in the last 200 years, I think that idea that this will change human behavior and that we're all going to flee to the countryside and we're never going to um, sort of gesture to each other in the same way, I think it's just very naive you know there's lots of people sort of assuming that we're going to live um, with vast amounts of yeast in our homes and that toilet rolls are going to be kept in every cupboard and that we're going to love making sourdough and homeschooling our kids forever and that we're going to have a complete rethink about what's important to us and we're going to move towards a more simpler way of life and that meetings will be a thing of the past and the conferences will be held online um, and I think it's far more likely actually that, that this thing ends more soon than we realize and it probably will end more dramatically than we realize because the news will get bored of covering it and something else will happen. Um, and then we'll actually be disappointed, I think, with how much life really has changed. And we'll, we'll look at the kind of pictures that we made of home-cooked food and we'll look at the walks that we went on that were lazy. Um, and we'll be somewhat regretful in a way that we weren't able to keep more of that alive inside us. Mm. Yeah, there are two things I'm curious about uh, as far as right now. One is, you know, every time I've been through, I guess, four or five down cycles like this yeah. before, and then two, three, four years later, there are articles popping up about someone who was really successful and this bad <laughs> thing happened, and then they went to Bali and now they live a completely different yeah. life. So yeah. I, I'm curious to see what genre of liberated individuals this leads to. And then the other yeah. thing is like fundamentalism. Will this lead to other kinds of fundamentalism? You know, I'm, I'm not deeply religious or deeply fundamental about anything, fundamentalist, I don't know what the word is, about, about much really or anything. But I'm really curious about fundamental community structures and they often started because of some kind of crisis and they all just, yeah. they just were like, yep, we're locking in exactly who we are right now. We're going to dress <laughs> like this for like forever, but yeah. it's, it's to protect who we are and how we see ourselves. I'm kind of curious about this. Yeah. Uh, one, one other thing is, one, one other question for you is, it's, it's funny, dude, because I'm, I'm, I've got some questions I want to ask you and at the same time, I've got a lot of sad thoughts going through my head because of what's going on out there and chats yeah. I've had. So I can tell that my, I'm a little bit distracted. So I apologize if I'm bouncing no. around a little yeah. bit. No. Um, 
you, from what I understand, you know, you're, you're head of futures and at the same time, you don't believe anyone can predict the future. So what is your role? I mean, there, there are things that you can definitely predict and you can predict them far more precisely than anyone would have you realize. And good examples of that is, um, you know, e-commerce has not been this thing that came from nowhere. You know, you can pretty much track an incredibly um, steady and slow progress in e-commerce for about 20 years. You know, the rise of consumption on the mobile phone should not really be surprising. Um, the rise of startup spaces is a pretty clear and easy thing to see. The failure of voice, I think, was obvious to anyone that actually got a smart speaker and used it for more than 10 minutes, kind of six years ago. Um, so I think there are many aspects of, of the future that can be easily predicted. Um, there are complete wild events that seem to follow no logic or reason, you know, like uh, the kind of archetypal black swan event as well um which obviously we're experiencing right now which are impossible to predict and it, it's sort of funny to me because you for many years i've read about ai and machine learning and these incredible machines like aladdin that was put together by blackrock or the incredible hedge funds like uh, renaissance technologies that used incredible sort of uh, phd level maths to try and predict uh, quantitatively movements in the stock exchange and all of those things have completely been blown out by this event so things which are impossible to predict and then there's something between the two which is the kind of the the things that happen because of the things that happen that are predictable so it's the thing like um, you know carl sagan talked about the idea that it was the car that allowed walmart to flourish or it's things like WeWork that allow, you know, small companies to scale more quickly than before, or things like Amazon Web Services become sort of levers that allow small companies to scale in ways that have never been done before. And those are the things that, that I find interesting. So will the, you know, will grocery commerce um, being delivered online be accelerated by this event? Um, because now sort of old people are being trapped in their homes and people that live in rural areas don't want to go out as much. And, and that's where you have to sort of combine technology uh, and sort of behavior and business models together. And that, that's the space that I try to operate in. So looking at what's changing in the world, looking at what could be changing in the world, um, looking at what's not changing in the world and trying to place it in a sort of historical context as well as a future context. Mm, yes, that's why I wrote down ahead of could be. So I like that you uh, yeah, land with that. So, so again, just to be really practical for, or try to be practical, even though we're really talking about the future and philosophy here. For somebody yeah. who is uh, who's just lost a job, who's in the sweathead community, for example, who's just lost a job, who fears they might have lost a job, who might be employed but their partner's lost a job, their friends have lost a job, people are sick around them. You just mentioned a, a, a some kind of framework, you know, thinking about what is changing, what could be changing, what isn't changing, you know, how could someone practically on one piece of paper start to put their brains to work if they can just catch themselves and pause some of the crazier emotions, not crazier, yeah, the crazier emotions that are going on and just go, you know what, I'm going to give myself 30 minutes to try to get to some kind of clarity. This sounds sort of uh, contrary to what I just said, but I think the best way to do this is actually to follow a different process. So that was me explaining my job, but if it comes to me to give advice, then actually I'd, I'd go about it in a slightly different way. Uh, I, I kind of hate the notion of advice and I hate the word and I hate the tonality of it because it somehow presupposes that I know stuff and you know I'm somehow more um, prepared for, for all this. So I want to kind of get away from that dynamic. Um, the second thing I'd say as well is that like anyone who's been working in advertising for the last 10 years should have been expecting to lose their job quite soon. Like I, I do get quite a lot of negative feedback on the internet where they're like, oh, for Tom, it's different for you because you work for a big agency. Like um, I'm amazed, anyone who's over 40 um, in the industry right now should should have always been expected to have their security pass not work one day. You know, like everyone's kind of one or two bad phone calls away from people making changes. And I do think that everyone should start to approach their career with the expectation that the only person that's going to look after their interests is themselves. And that actually comfort comes from the, own, from the skills that you develop and the reputation that you build and the relationships that you nurture. It doesn't come from having a boss that likes you or having a client that likes you. What I would be doing and... Um, 
And I'm really excited by this, actually. I think we, we can look at sort of uh, late-stage capitalism, which was this sort of meme and joke that everyone on social media loved, and whether it's subsidised helicopters or whether it's um, fragranced candles delivered to you in monthly boxes or all sorts of things that now seem extremely excessive and seemed quite excessive at the time. We now get to um, put all of that crap behind us and just think of two things. One, like what are the incredible... Um, human problems that we can now solve? Like, what are the things that are either incredibly socially responsible and wonderfully good for the world? So, whether it's educating um, people around the world, whether it's helping people um, upskill, whether it's ensuring that old people can access healthy food, whether it's um, helping your kids have good mental health. I think of all the amazing sort of charity-like situations that are out there. But then also think about things which are slightly more, um, slightly less problem-focused and slightly more opportunity-focused, like whether it's devices that help save money in the home, whether it's things that help save energy, whether it's ways to give people lifts to work. Just think about all the amazing things that you would love to see exist in the world. And then your second exercise, I think, can be to look through the amazing technology that we already have. Because we don't need 5G to do any of this stuff. Um, whether it's the phone, whether it's the internet, whether it's Bluetooth, um, whether it's cheaper data aggregation, whether it's cheaper processing power, just start to kind of layer that through as a kind of tapestry or a canvas of opportunity. And then start to look at those two things together. So wouldn't it be great if, you know, it might be quite a middle class thing. It might be a better way to find a babysitter that means that you can spend more time with your friends that don't have kids. Um, it might be a way to get access to um, a local artists when you go to a nearby town and you can do a tour of, of the sort of art that they love. So it might be quite frivolous, but still quite wholesome things like that. It might be ways to go out for drinks with friends and to have better conversations. It might be ways to invite other people into your social group that perhaps are a bit different to you. You know, there's all sorts of things that are, are still quite um, sort of superficial and privileged feeling. Um, but then there will also be other things which are, you know, based on people that have um, more disadvantages in their life. So helping kids in Africa learn, helping um, people who are trying to sell things at markets in Africa get to the market. You know, what does Uber look like um, in rural communities? What does a WeWork look like in a tiny village? How do you get, you know, people in, who are older to feel more connected to young people? Um, how do you stop the... Uh, rise of algorithms and notification um, sort of addiction affecting young teenagers today. There are all sorts of really big problems that people can solve. And for a long time, there's been this assumption that, you know, things that are good can't make money. And I just think that's not true at all. You know, the Nest thermostat is quite good for the planet and was sold for $3.2 billion to Google. Mm. Um, there's no reason why goodness has to be antithetical to profit. I think from a neutral distance, distant yeah. point of view that all of that makes sense. And I, I would sort of, the first point you made about careers, I think is weird, counterintuitive and obvious and still awkward, but essentially yeah. to treat, treat your career like a business, uh, I think is like one of the main things there. And then yeah. to map wholesome needs with the technology we have and problems that we can solve. But again, someone, especially in a country such as America, where mo I think half of America or a quarter of America was living paycheck to paycheck anyway before this, uh, coming out of college with crazy college debt, if you can even get into college. It's like, yeah, but Tom, I've got like 50 grand, 100 grand's worth of debt. You know, I'm trying to do internships. I'm trying to like just get my foot up on the ladder, right? Like I, I, I bought into a script for 10 years, for 20 years, and now that script's not true. So I'm dealing with that. And that's a difficult script change to deal with because you get you often will beat yourself up for thinking, God, why was I so stupid? Why didn't anyone teach me this before? Now I've got to learn this other script. And so not only do you have to sort of grieve your history of not being prepared for the moment and then blaming other people, you then got to move into a different mode of operating. And that different mode of operating is not all people. Not all people would be able to do what you said or would be interested in doing what you said there. And, and I can see people sort of going like wrestling with that because on paper, it sounds matter of fact, it sounds very uh, smart, but then it's like, yeah, but I've got 70 grand's worth of debt. Like, ah. <sighs> Uh, it's it's very hard to answer something such things in a way that seems uh, sufficiently sensitive. Um, like 
life has always been really, really hard. Like I think in, in my real core being, I'm quite stoic. Like I do believe that life to some extent is suffering and that work is torture and that, um, you know, death is the only way out and that we should be really thankful for simple things. Um, so it's quite easy for me to sound quite sort of dismissive and miserable. But um, I think the reality is that it's always been very hard to graduate with $70,000 debt. Like, there's never really been a time when interns ever got paid particularly well. And to even think about embracing on a career in advertising is um, something that has massive amounts of risk and potentially small financial rewards. And that hasn't changed in the last few months. It's always been very hard. I would like to think that we can get positivity from the fact that we are now a bit more in control. So, you know, 20 years ago, if you didn't get into Saatchi and Saatchi or Leo Burnett or, you know, any other amazing agency at the time, you were kind of screwed. Like your, your career would, um, would, would struggle because there wasn't really anything you could do yourself about it. Uh, and actually now you could decide to set up your own company with the hope that you'd make um, a lot of success with it. And maybe later on in life, an agency would pick you up or maybe you never want to work in an advertising agency anyway. So I, I think we have more mechanisms that are, are controlled than ever before. You know, you can now set up a Shopify site and sell to, I think, 170 countries. And it takes you a few hours to do that. Um, if you wanted to set up a, a commerce business 10 years ago, it would have cost, you know, a million dollars to be able to, to sell to that many markets. So I, I think um, life is definitely not fair, but we have more mechanisms at our disposal that we have more control over that are now financially more accessible than ever before. And therefore, I think the real resource that we need to focus on more is actually much more internal and it's based around our attitude and our self-belief and our confidence and our agility and our robustness to um, mistakes and to failure. And those are extremely hard things to develop and I haven't developed them very well myself, but, but they are more internal rather than like extrinsic things. Yeah, and, and I would point out that if you did grow up in that family with that beautiful message on the was it on the fridge and yeah. a, f a family that believes in you and that's together, that's lottery winning as well, right? And a lot of people, a lot of people don't grow up with that, and no. early trauma and inhaling adult emotions from a very young age can Absolutely. make these things even more chaotic. But uh, I think I think there's a lot of like sensibility in what you're saying. Obviously, has anybody pushed back on one of your points of view recently where you were like, "Oh, that's good. That's better." It happens all the time. It hasn't happened on this particular topic because I've never spoken about this widely before. But I mean, I'm definitely not right right now. Like, um, you know, someone will write to you or write to me and say, you are entirely wrong. It's not like that, dot, dot, dot. And they will be correct. So these are all, um, uh, I have this, maybe it's my accent, but I throw out a lot of thoughts that are not fully formed, that are not um, profound, that are not correct, that are not in any way fair to be considered advice. But I think they are helpful towards a conversation that gets to a place um, where the ideas are more developed and mature and, and thoughtful and robust. So, so none of what I say is a simplistic um, series of, of rules and thoughts that, that are in themselves perfect. But I am sure that there is a solution within this. So this idea of self-belief will absolutely be part of that solution. The acknowledgement that there is a opportunity within the world of doing good is definitely an area to explore, but that's not the only area. I think the, the only thing that I would say that I can be quite confident about is that I don't, I don't see the social contract with companies reverting. Like, I don't think that in 50 years' time, we're going to have large manufacturing companies that you join on an apprenticeship without a degree at the age of 18, and then you retire at the age of 63 with an incredible pension. Like, we are going to be a group of people who can only really rely on ourselves and our friends and our family and our partners. And it's going to be up to us to kind of run me, PLC. But we should also claw back on some of the assumptions that we've made. So we've always made assumptions like one should try to retire when we're older and one should aim to own a house and one should aim to um, live in a city if in some mindset. Someone needs a garden and you should have kids and you should have the same number of bedrooms as you do kids and the kids should go to university. And I think before long, our whole life becomes very 
um, sort of trapped by the assumption we need to earn a ton of money and the assumption that um, we have to save a ton of money. And therefore, all of these criteria become so limited in their framing of what a successful look, life looks like that we don't necessarily pursue things which are more imaginative and easier. So maybe it's okay to, maybe, maybe, the, maybe I would be happiest living uh, in a small farm in Wales and just doing um, advisory services on the phone for two hours a week. And maybe I'd grow my own vegetables and not have kids and that would be an amazing life and I'd never need to retire because doing two hours a week of phone calls is not particularly uh, physically demanding. Mm. Uh, maybe success comes from a kind of Faris and Rosie Jacob style life where you have this sort of nomadic existence. Um, maybe success comes from um, reducing how much you want to earn and just enjoying the fact that if you have lots of time, then actually life becomes quite cheap. Um, so I, I, I think it's interesting to explore different ways of defining what security and success look like. Mm. Yes, yeah, some of those themes, uh, they've been engineered to in, in politics to be very conservative ideas, self-reliance and responsibility and self-belief, etc. Yeah. Yet, the people that I would look up to from a creative point of view, it's what they do. <laughs> they might have had a lot of luck along the way, but yeah. they sit, sit down and do their work and they often Absolutely. have communities that they can contribute to. It's just funny. Yeah to hear over the past decades, the idea of responsibility and self-reliance, for example, is used as a reason not to help other people. No, absolutely. And I, that's, that's why these things are difficult to express um, sort of precisely because, you know, to be reliant on yourself is not to say there's no such thing as society. Um, it's just saying that you should try to have this sort of attitude of not expecting things from big companies. Um, and in the abundance of security that you get from your own selves, that gives you energy and, and power and uh, resources to help people around you. So you, you get to sort of club together, you know, in, in this idea that, you know, but somehow we have assumed that everyone should go to university and that, you know, if you're recruiting for a role, what people did between the age of 19 and 23 is somehow vastly more important than what they do after that period of time. Um, and again, these, so many of these ideas actually don't fit that well within a political spectrum. They're much more about um, looking back or looking forwards. But um, I, I'd love to think that we now are able to embrace um, a sense of, of, of kind of controlling our own destiny and being part of a community and helping each other out and striving for a better sense of belonging and purpose. And actually, we might realize that things like money and things like social hierarchy and things like status um, maybe now can start to retrench a little bit back. I'm going to ask you one final question, and yeah. I feel it's a question you would have been asked many times, probably at the end of some kind of panel on a stage where the interviewer finds themselves very witty in asking it. But, you know, I'm not too good for an obvious question. And the obvious question is, uh, Tom Goodwin as head of futures of Publicis, what's, uh, what does your future hold? <laughs> I've worked really, really hard to make sure that I'm able to do lots of different things. So apologies if this sounds anything close to smug, but I've done a really good job of limiting my expenses. So other than my apartment and where I feel at home is extremely important to me. Um, I have virtually no fixed costs in my life um, and I don't really enjoy expensive things that much. I don't really have extravagant tastes. I've, I've kept down my fixed costs and I've accidentally branched out into lots of different income streams. So whether it's occasionally airbnb out this place or whether it's um, writing a book or doing a training program or having a job or being on some boards, um, I sort of earn money in different ways. And that now means that I get to sort of play with lots of different levers. So I now have absolutely no idea what country I'm going to live in for the rest of my life. I've got no idea uh, if I want to have kids or not. I've got no idea if I want to set up my own company at some point. I've got no idea if I want to sort of be super ambitious and try to earn money so that I can give back in more meaningful ways. I just kind of um, take each day as it comes, really. And for a long time, that's seemed to be a big disadvantage because people think you're really lost in life and people think that you don't have ambition, you don't have structure, and you don't have a vision that you're aiming for. Um, and, and definitely without sounding smug, this situation now has done quite a good job of making people realize that actually planning is hard and that the future is unknown. And having uh, the ability to sort of change your plans and change your, um, your dreams is actually quite useful. And these other dreams and plans that we might make perhaps aren't necessarily worse than the ones that we had before. They might just be different.
There is actually one thing I want to sort of discuss, and sorry if this is making this podcast a bit long, but um, we are wrong to think that the way that we have been behaving for the last two or three years is somehow the peak of this wonderful thing. Like, you know, generally speaking, the internet has created an abundance of media and it's created demands on our brains to be always on, and it's created demands of our jobs to be replying to emails quickly. It's sort of reduced um, thinking to a minimum. Um, it's meant incredible amount of excess, whether it's um, excess consumerism, whether it's um, excess showing off, whether it's a kind of culture of um, sort of validation through social media. And I don't actually think this thing is going to be around long enough to completely change that. And I don't think we are going to go back to a more sensible, slow, um, authentic way of being. But we, we should ask the question, which is, um, you know, m maybe we were living beyond our means. Like maybe it wasn't okay to have um, Instagram ads for reimagined pajamas um, surrounding us. Maybe it's not okay to be on the subway system and see five different types of boxed meals that are all losing vast amounts of money. Maybe to have um, shopping centers with $70 pairs of men's underwear that you can subscribe to in a monthly box. Like maybe that's not what our future should have been. Like maybe, maybe this is a good time to sort of gather and realize that going on a walk is nice and that you know, not going away to Machu Picchu to take photographs from Tinder, you know, and instead just sort of going on a walk around a lake is quite nice. Like maybe this is a good time to, if we can, and, and it's a luxury, sort of step back and sort of reassess our priorities. Um, and we might realize the more simple things are good. Mm. Uh, I have a feeling that $70 underwear subscriptions were to blame <laughs> for the toilet paper infatuation. I think Because so. if you're going to spend that much money on uh, underpants, you want to make sure they're clean at all times. I think we, but we have got so used to being spoiled. Like we got so used to the fact, and I, I don't want to go all like sort of Louis C.K. on you, but we've got so used to the fact that all the TV that we watch should just be free and it should be immediate and it should be high resolution. And, you know, you look at shows like Ozark, which are world-class or Billions, which is world-class or The West Wing, which is world-class. It's like, I don't think we realize how crap the past used to be before that. Like um, our expectations are so incredible because VC money has been so abundant and cheap. I think maybe a, like a, a small amount of hardship um, is not necessarily a bad thing for reassessing priorities. Yeah, that's one of the, like, there'll be people right now watching this or listening to this, like, oh, it's not a small amount of hardship, Tom, it's not. It's not like for some people, they're going to feel devastated. And the, the, the thing that I try to approach anybody's point of view with, unless they're nuts, is take what you need and move on. You know, so because it's so hard to say all the things you're trying to make a point. If anyone's trying to make a point, there are always so many pieces of meaning housed in every single word and every single sentence that you basically have to write a book to express that one point for it to be bulletproof. And then guess what? Someone will destroy it and it's not bulletproof. You're like, oh, I need to write a second book to defend that first point. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, a little bit of introspection. I, think. I, need to, I definitely need to sort of claw back that small amount of hardship. I, uh, that <laughs> hardship will be very, very, very unevenly distributed. I happen to be extremely optimistic about how quickly the economy might get back up and running. And I think that if you aggregate all of the hardship that is felt and divided by everyone, it, it, on average, it won't be as major as we think. But clearly, there will be people who really suffer. But also, these things do have to be kept in relationship to the past. In the, um, you know, I, I do think we have become so sensitive to anything that seems difficult. Like I, I think somehow. You know, when people have to think, like we, we believe that thinking is really hard work and that hard work is a bad thing. Or we think that things that make us reassess who we are is, is a sort of horrible process when actually it's quite beneficial. So I think um, uh, I definitely don't want to seem uh, unsensitive. But if, if we have hope and if we focus on what matters and if we realize that maybe um, many, of our, maybe many of the things that really matter are not necessarily that expensive, mm. then from that kind of uh, outlook, then some of these concepts make more sense. But it's also, you know, I, I know we, we talked a little bit about you on the internet and how people respond to you there. But the thing is, like in a regular conversation, you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't the right word that I used there and you get to change it. But on the internet, you don't. It's there no. and you're already attacked by 100 people. Absolutely. Not, not necessarily you, but someone who... Yeah, yeah, no, it happens. Right? 
I mean, me saying something as silly as a small amount of hardship is is definitely a good example of how that would happen. I mean, the other thing is when you live in New York, it makes you incredibly tough. Like, um, you know, this is a city that's sort of based on seeing horrible things on an hourly basis. Mm. So I think um, maybe that explains some of the the sort of harshness of of some of the dialect that you hear. Mm. When's your second book going to be out? Uh, I don't know. Like I was going to be writing it now, and then it—it's f- quite hard to focus at this moment in time. And um, yeah, while I believe that things in my heart will get back to normal, and it may not take that long, and this may seem more like a blip than we believe it will be now, it also feels very disrespectful and naive to be writing something that will exist in print in perhaps a year's time now because everything might seem completely sort of against the tone and it might seem inappropriate and it might seem sort of wildly unrepresentative of the dynamic that may exist at that time. So I'm trying to just take a bit of time to think, to be honest. I'm, uh, I'm interested in this book title, Awful Outdoing, but I think, <laughs> I think, I think we're going to name it The Undoing of Awful Outdoing. That'd be a fun <laughs> book title. I'm just saying, uh, I have to amuse myself. I have to amuse myself. I have to amuse myself. Uh, Tom, I really appreciate you joining me on Sweathead today. Do you want to mention where people can find you on the internet? Where's the best place? Uh, I don't know. They'll probably see too much of me already, but um, I'm trying to calm down on Twitter at the moment. So um, Twitter or LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, it's good to see your face. I definitely imagine your hair being way more spectacular than it is now, just to end in a very trite uh, and meaningless way. Uh, I guess we all deal with reality in different ways, don't we? We do. I like your hat. Thanks, mate. Uh, it's, to, it's to hide my midlife hair crisis. But it's funny, when I went to therapy last year, I was telling all my stories and I smile as I'm telling them. And, and the therapist is like, why do you keep smiling? And I'm like, this is like, why wouldn't I smile at all these stories? These are ridiculous. And you're the psychologist, you should know. Uh, but anyway, I, I use awkward humor to back in and out of awkward conversations. But uh, it's good to see your face, mate. And um, best wishes in, in your lockdown. Thanks for the chat. Same with you. Keep strong. Peace. Bye.